frankly, both our political parties are captured by an economic elite, more and more so since 2006. And people who feel that that is the case are not incorrect when you look at the kinds of policies that are put forward on both sides of the aisle and the kinds of money that is going into our politics. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. I traveled to the Czech Republic a few days ago where a billionaire by the name of Andrei Babish is likely to um, form the next government. And it made me think of something, that in that area of the world that was liberated from communism after 1989, has done very well economically in many ways, you've now seen a very rapid decline of liberal democracy, so much so that you have what I would like to call the populist belt in the middle of Central Europe. You can now travel from the North Sea all the way to the Aegean through lands that are ruled by populists or in which populists have a huge role in the government. You can drive from Poland, through Slovakia, through Hungary, through Serbia, through Macedonia, to Greece. And in the next weeks and months, it's likely that we can add the Czech Republic and Austria to that list. In fact, when you look at the election results in Germany, last swaths of East Germany now see the alternative for Germany as being either the strongest party or the second strongest party. So there's really a massive landmass in the heart of Europe, which had been liberated from outside domination after 1989, and which is now voluntarily voting for a new attenuated form of repression. It is heartbreaking in terms of what it means for that region, and it's really interesting in its implications for the likely future of democracy in other parts of the world. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Rachel Kleinfeld. Uh, Rachel is, you know, the sort of person we would have on this podcast. She's a Rhodes Scholar who has a PhD from Oxford at DPhil, I suppose, who's a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment. But she's also somebody who grew up in a small town Alaska and now lives in small town Colorado and has thought really carefully about how people who oppose Donald Trump can rally people around their cause, can oppose some of Trump's was outrageous and build a winning coalition in 2018 and 2010. She had a lot of really interesting insights about that in our conversation, and I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Rachel, thank you for joining the podcast. Thrilled to be here. You know, I always struggle, I always go back and forth about what we can actually do to stand up to Donald Trump and stand up to other populist movements around the world. And one instinct is to just go out in the streets and protest with everything we've got. And I think that's important, that's right, because we want to show that the populists do not speak in the name of a f whole people. They like to characterize opponents as not being like you and me at all, as being these sort of extremists, as being these cranks, and I think showing that's not the case is really important. But there's also real limits to protest politics. I know that you're sort of quite critical of certain forms of protest politics. Help us think through how we can actually stand up to these movements without falling into the mistakes that opponents of populist movements have made, both in the United States and in some other countries? So protests are a fascinating issue for exactly the reasons you lay out here, that they mobilize people, they give people energy, they tell other people that the emperor has no clothes, but they often backfire as well and can harden opposition against them. And so you often have to pick in a protest movement 
between various goals, all of which are important, but that don't go together. It's not a happy world in which everything is easy and builds on itself. There's also a good amount of research on this now. Erica Chenoweth at um, University of Denver kind of kicked it off with Maria Stefan in their book on nonviolent movements and what they found looking quantitatively at nonviolent forms of regime change or policy change was that nonviolence works much, much better than violence, which no one expected. Everyone used to think that violent efforts to overthrow governments were much more effective. Not true. What they also found was that the reason nonviolent movements work better is that they can attract more people from a broader swath of society. So, you know, it's one thing when you have your 20-year-old students out on the street, everyone expects that. It's another thing when you have housewives and police and professionals and people who are members of the regime who you get to slowly turn away from that regime. And I'm speaking in terms that, you know, sound like autocracy versus democracy, but they're also relevant when you're talking about growing illiberal democracies like in the Philippines and Turkey and perhaps even our own country eventually. So is the point that actually protest movements is exactly what you need? You need as many people out in the street as possible, but in part to get that mass and in part for there not to be a backlash against it, you need to ensure that it's nonviolent and, and that you pick the right battles? Or, or is it a deeper skepticism about sort of the role of street protests and public protests in general? You need a lot of people to show that they don't agree with what's happening. If you look at Gene Sharp's work, Gene Sharp was at Harvard for a long time and is sort of the great grandfather of civil resistance. And one of the first steps is to tell people what everyone knows, but that not everyone thinks they know. So in a lot of regimes, there's a lot of silence. People within a civil service might not say that they don't support the government. Maybe people will be on the streets, but your police won't tell each other that they don't believe in some of the methods that are being used or your DOJ won't. So you need things that allow those people to share the fact that they don't agree with what's happening so that those people who are crucial to the regimes doing the things it's doing, whether it's turning immigrants away at a border or detaining people without cause or what have you, so that those people don't just go along. And for those people to change their minds, public protest can be quite mixed. If it's broad and if it includes people who are like them, then it can be empowering. It can give them the sense that their voice matters and that they should stand up and that they'll have a lot of support. If it's more narrow and can be dismissed as partisan, particularly, then it will scare them because they don't want to be tarred as against the regime, they'll lose their jobs. So we need to keep in mind the strategic purpose of protests. And to you, that is moving people in the middle and moving the kinds of people who might make the difference between the success or the failure of a lurch towards autocracy. It's civil servants who might have to make crucial decisions about who to side with in a constitutional crisis. It's judges who might have to decide whether to bow to uh, pressure from the executive or stand up and decide court cases independently. Now, where do you think the protest movements of the United States in the last you know, nine or ten months score on that? Because it, it seems to me, and I haven't thought about this nearly as carefully as you have, but there's some really bright spots and some really worrying spots, right? I mean, the travel ban, I think people came out in a nonviolent way, in a spontaneous way, and had a real impact on certainly the public debate around it. They performed a sense of outrage, a sense of this is not normal, but I think was, was actually quite helpful in framing the issue. And for we obviously won't know, it's difficult to find a certain answer to that. It does feel like 
the judiciary's willingness to stand up to the travel ban may have been empowered by that, right? At the same time, you've also had moments in which there's been violence from counter-protesters, which has potentially helped Republicans to rally around a lot of people who might be critical of Trump back to the fold. So where do you think we stand on that? So you basically took the words right out of my mouth. I would have said exactly what you said, that in the United States context, and obviously this applies to many contexts, there's a whole series of countries now that are backsliding, including the biggest democracies in the world, like India. So I think we need to be conscious that this is a global movement in which both the cat and the mouse are learning from each other. The United States is actually not particularly bad on that sliding scale comparatively, but we could get a lot worse and people look to us for what's normal. And so we don't want to slide too far. And I think you're exactly right. When a bunch of lawyers come out and use legal means, go to airports and say, let me use the United States law and our codes of justice and our courts to defend you, that is the kind of protest that is both attention getting, but also lets people in the judiciary and lets other lawyers know that this is okay. This is something they can be behind. And what you are trying to do is move your normal Republicans, right? Not necessarily your hardcore Trump supporters who came out and voted for the first time. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not about them anyway, right? This is something that has come up before in the podcast. And the more I think about it, the more that's obvious to me. Like, this is not about persuading hardcore Trump supporters to turn away from Trump. It's about persuading people who voted for Obama potentially in the last years, people who voted for, who would have happily voted for Romney, but who are really at some level quite disgusted by Trump, but have always voted Republican, dislike Democrats for all kinds of reasons. That's the people we need to win in 2020. And we should always keep that in mind. Forget about the hardcore Trump supporter. He's most likely going to be a hardcore Trump supporter or a supporter of some other person mobilizing that energy for a long time. Forget about them. Let's focus on the middle if we are to win back power in the United States. Exactly. Exactly right. And by that we, I should say, you know, I'm a Democrat. People know that. I'm uh, publicly on record as a Democrat. But frankly, I think this is a much bigger issue. It's really about our institutions of democracy. And they've yes. been under threat from not just Trump. They were under threat from George Bush, W. Bush and the Patriot Act that Congress passed right after 9-11 that enshrined a lot of emergency powers. Obama continued that. Obama gave our cybersecurity to the military and sort of militarized a lot of our efforts to protect the American people. And so this is not a Republican or a Democratic issue, I don't think. The filibuster is a congressional issue that has to do with powers between the parties, but also has to do with just the basic institutions and norms that keep our democracy functioning. So while I'm a Democrat and I would like to get power back in 2020, I think that the framing here needs to be we believe in our constitution. We believe in our rule of law. We believe in the institutions that have been around a couple hundred years and have worked really well. And we need to defend those. That is the we that I use. You know, when I, I used to teach freshman writing at Harvard and I would always tell people, do not say we, say I, you know, but the we of a good fight, the we of this podcast is, uh, even though I, I also certainly, my sympathies are over Democrats, who are Republicans even five years ago, I would bet that that is true of a lot of the people listening to this conversation right now. But our institutional we as the good fight is we who believe in liberal democracy and who want to defend our institutional rules and norms against the attacks on it, which come especially strongly from Donald Trump right now, but 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 he's not the only threat. I, I, I agree with that. Thanks for spelling that out so well, Rachel. Yeah. And in that way, the really dangerous protests, I think, are 
unfortunately, Black Lives Matter and Antifa, while I agree, I, I do a lot of work in criminal justice now, and there is no possible way to overstate just how unfair, unequal, unjust the U.S. criminal justice system is. It is really bad. And when Black Lives Matter started, I thought, boy, finally, we're going to have a public conversation about this. And I thought that was great. But what an effective protest movement does is it broadens its base. It brings in as many people as possible. It creates issues that people can agree on. And then it moves the ball forward through politics, through getting people elected and through policies that can actually pass. Black Lives Matter has done the opposite. It's narrowed. It's become more willing to excuse violence. It's turned people away from its calls to action. And then it's explicitly chosen not to be political and not to get involved in the political and policy domains. It's put out a set of policy goals, but they're not the kind of effective, implementable policy goals that you could actually imagine people getting together and moving forward. And so it's very sad to me because the goals I believe in, in terms of changing our criminal justice, the means are not functional and are turning people away. And it's the same, I think, with this anti-FA movement that... So, so Rich, let, let, me, let me cut in for a moment because I want to understand, so there's all of these different protest movements, right? And I think it's really helpful to, to think through why some of them are effective ways of defending liberal democracy and others might not be, right? So we have a sort of set of them we've mentioned so far, right? So we started with response to uh, the travel ban. And I think we agreed that that has been mostly an effective protest. I mean, we don't know how effective it was, but it certainly sort of had the right kind of attributes. It was inclusive. It was spontaneous. It cast itself as defending American values in the American constitution against encroachment rather than the other way around. Now, let's go to the other extreme, because I want to sort of start understanding some of the criteria you're employing and coming to these very nuanced judgments, right? So the other thing where we're starting to, to mention yourself is Antifa, right? Why is it that you think Antifa, which seems like a sort of clear-cut case on the other side, is problematic? So let me give you a short answer, then let me take you back to history. I think it's problematic because it's using violence. And when you use violence, it feels good in the short term. And you might defend people and keep people secure, as seemed to happen in Charlottesville. But ultimately, the people willing to support violence are fewer than those willing to support nonviolence. And so you narrow your group of people that are willing to support your cause, and you harden the forces of law and order on the other side, on the just normal Republicans who might not like Trump, but will vote Republican, and they believe in law and order. And when you move away from law and order, you give them a reason to rally around the current administration rather than to, to turn away from it. So one way of thinking about this is that there's all of this middle that, you know, has traditionally voted Republican, voted for Trump, but is really concerned about Trump, doesn't actually like Trump particularly, and they might be able to be peeled off from the authoritarian coalition. But one thing that Trump is trying to do is to cast people on the other side as instigators of violence and as lawless and as disorderly. And the more we come to resemble the caricature of what opponents of the authoritarian or would-be authoritarian regime are like, the more likely it is that the authoritarian regime is going to be able to, to keep the allegiance of that flippable middle. Is that one way of putting this? That's a beautiful way of putting it. There's a beautiful book called The Righteous Mind by uh, Jonathan Haidt, who's a psychologist, I believe, and has done a lot of behavioral psychology, uh, real experiments with real people. And he says, look, there's different ways of framing your values. And the left actually only uses a couple. We use things like equality, 
and justice and fairness. The right has a lot more taste buds, as it were. They have a, a set of ways of framing values that are broader than the left across countries, and they include things like respect for authority and law and order. And so when you challenge those basic values about how a government should function, you're going to rally people of a more conservative mindset around someone who's, I mean, Trump isn't a conservative at all. He was a Democrat years ago. He's now a Republican, but not really. He doesn't believe in conservatism. What he really is, is a self-promoting narcissist. And you don't want your real conservatives to rally around that. And so what Jonathan Haidt would say is, don't press the button of law and order and give them a reason to rally around someone they don't otherwise like. So, look, I agree with that on Antifa for a whole number of reasons, right? I mean, I've also seen, by the way, in the German experience of protests, you know, certainly well-founded in the 60s and early 70s, often against sort of former senior Nazis who were in big positions in the Federal Republic and the sort of file of student movement trying to oppose them and changing the country for the better in many ways. But there was uh, splinter groups of it that started to basically see fascism everywhere and saying that the only way to stand up to fascism is eventually to oppose it with violence. And Hans Kundnani has written about this beautifully in his book, Utopia Auschwitz. They started mm -hmm. to think that the only way to oppose this movement was to start attacking everybody who were considered fascists. And by the way, that often ended up being Jewish community centers. It often ended up being establishment politicians who weren't Nazis at all. It turned very violent very quickly because if you allow grassroots groups to make their own decision about who they consider potential fascists and you empower them and encourage them to fight fascists with violence, you're going to wind up with people dead who aren't fascists under any sensible description of that term. So I've been thinking a lot about that sort of odd historical parallel because I think there's a similar danger of Antifa where each local group is saying, well, that guy is a fascist. And when you end up, as you did in Berkeley, with someone who, you know, has shopped J. Crew and is on his lunch run being mistaken for, you know, a far-right protester and being beaten up. Exactly. We could quibble with whether you should wear J. Crew, but, you know, that's really... Well, no, I mean, I think, I, I, think, I think wearing J. Crew is... Uh, Certainly something that should be punished in some way, but but not by being beaten up. You know, how is it that we stand up to the white nationalism of the Trump administration, to the weaponization of nationalism in pursuit of dog whistles that are dropping in an octave a day until they're just this sort of incredibly loud, low-pitched roar that they have become over the last months? How do we stand up to all of that? One instinct is to run away from nationalism and patriotism and say, well, look, if that's what America is, I'm not going to endorse American symbols and ideals. I'm going to be really skeptical about any form of patriotism and nationalism. I know that you don't really agree with that, right? Do you think that we need to sort of capture nationalism or some form of patriotism for ourselves? I mean, how do we do that without running the danger of bleeding into that kind of more exclusionary nationalism? Well, America is very lucky in this. I would say Europe has a much harder job. And you can see that when you look at polls on how they think of immigrants versus how we think of immigrants and that sort of thing. America is a country founded on a set of ideals. And it's a country founded on a set of values. And anyone who subscribes to those can be American, which is why when you walk through the customs line in America, you see these videos, you know, of cowboys and Indians and people of all different races and people from all different countries who have come here to make that their home. That's part of our national myth. And we have lived up to it to greater or lesser degrees at different times, but it's a very easy myth to tap into. 
to make the case that our democracy is not a blood nationalism. I think, frankly, it's harder in a place like Germany, where blood nationalism played a large role in how people thought of themselves or Spain or what have you, where they really need to fight a dominant national idea, even England, where the kind of little England, the tea and doilies and beer in the pub and that sort of lifestyle still plays a major role in the national myth, even as that country was an empire and took in people from all over and so on. America has this very easy myth and story that we can tap into. And I don't use myth in a pejorative sense. I mean, it's this is the story we tell ourselves about our country. And that story is a story that we can tap into to say, standing for our rule of law and our constitution and the values we all believe in is what is the most patriotic thing to do. And those are the real Americans. I always get a little scared when you start using words like real America, but Insofar as we have real Americans, they're people who believe in the values, not people who happen to live in a place with dirt roads. I mean, I live in a place with dirt roads, but that doesn't make me any more American than when I lived in a place that was asphalted. It doesn't make sense. So I agree with you that on that count, America is actually in a better place than than many other countries that are facing this populist threat. I mean, you know, in the imagination of a large majority of the German population or the French population or the Swedish population, you know, a real Swede, that doesn't just mean, you know, somebody who lives in the countryside and dirt roads rather than in Stockholm. It means somebody who's sort of not necessarily blonde and blue-eyed, but certainly sort of ethnically Scandinavian, right? And and overcoming that, changing that is a really hard slog. And those countries have made some progress over the past decades, but not that much. And America here does have a better start, uh, despite its obviously deep history of racial injustice, I think nowadays for most Americans, it is clear that somebody who's black can be American, that somebody who's from Latin America can be American. There's some people who don't believe it, but they are actually in a minority. But how sort of politically do we activate that? I mean, how on the left or even in the political center do we talk about, or even for that matter, on a moderate right, should we talk about being American in a way that emphasizes what we have in common rather than divides us from each other and that doesn't run the risk of reinforcing those kind of exclusionary appeals, that kind of white nationalism that we've seen to be more potent over the past nine months than than I would have imagined. So it helps to talk to real people and to get out of the beltway a little bit. You know, I I don't think it's very difficult. Joe Biden does this beautifully. You know, he just has a way of connecting with how regular people think. I think reading Jonathan Haidt's book about the different value structures can help someone who's a little more cerebral and a little less, uh, has a little less emotional intelligence than Joe Biden. But um, basically it means Americans, when they look at immigration, most Americans, and I, I'm not going to quote you a number because I haven't looked at the polling recently, but the majority of Americans support immigration. A plurality are concerned about illegal immigration, and that has to do with our law and order mentality and the people who really believe law and order matters. So that's not a hard distinction to draw. And you can even draw a better distinction and say, well, let's make our laws sensible. Uh, right now, our immigration laws are just begging people to come here illegally for all sorts of reasons. And we know in other areas that sensible laws that people can follow are more likely to be followed. So there's ways to do this, but you have to start with where people are emotionally. When you start with, and and again, I could cite a whole lot of communications research on this, but when you start by telling people that they are not 
worth listening to, that they are racist, that they are deplorable in one way or another, they're not going to listen to you. When you start by saying, you know, it's not surprising that you want your community to feel like it did before. Most people have that as they get older, particularly most people have sort of that small C conservative, I want things to be the same somewhere in their emotional psyche. To empathize with that and then talk about how we can make America truly great again, which means getting people to work, which means educating people so they can work, which means a whole lot of things that I think we can agree on across the aisle and acknowledging that America is in a bit of a doldrum right now. This does not seem to me that emotionally hard or that difficult from a communication standpoint, but it it starts from not discriminating or not turning up your nose at people who might disagree. That's an important point. It's interesting that at the end of that, you started to mention education and the economy and so on. I mean, I wonder whether questions of race and racial animosity and, and the ability of Trump to really weaponize white resentment has been so powerful in 2016 because he came on the stage and, and activated uh, a lot of those latent feelings and fears and so on. Or it's also that we didn't have a robust enough economic debate for people to polarize around other issues. And so, you know, it's not clear to me whether if people ran in 2018 and 2020 on a much clearer economic profile, they would sort of be talking past voters' concerns that are ultimately about culture, or whether that would be a way to help shift the political conversation and shift the main political cleavage to issues that both might put us in a better position to actually address some of the driving causes of populism, like the stagnation of income standards, and make people see what they have in common rather than what divides them. You know, part of why I'm not an academic is that I don't believe in single-use answers. I, I tend to see the world as pretty complex and that people's minds make connections between different things that fall into different categories within academic discourse. And I think the cultural and the economic health, all these things are get related in people's minds. So three years ago, the Pew Foundation did a lot of polling that didn't just look at whether people were left, right, but looked at a whole lot of other factors. And what they found was that there is a very, very significant majority of the country that thinks that the system is rigged against them. Now, those people uh, might think the system is rigged against them because they don't like black people. But they might also think the system is rigged against them because economics have been stagnating and it used to be that a high school education could get you a job and now it can't get you a good job. And it might be a combination of many things. It might be that they only have a high school education. They have an expectation that might be a false one, but grounded in their history that they should be able to get a job. And with affirmative action, there are now people that they see as cutting in front of them in line. Now, I don't think you have to be racist to think, well, that person is going to have a lot of resentment and whether their resentment is targeted at the right things or not, that resentment is going to come out in a racial way, in an economic way, in a whole lot of different ways. And it's not easily solved by just pulling on one of those levers. Instead, you need to give people a sense of hope and dignity. And I think the reason you saw 12% of Obama voters then vote for Trump is not a surprise. There's a lot of people who liked the message of hope and dignity, didn't feel like they delivered, and wanted to try something else. Because frankly, both our political parties are captured by an economic elite, more and more so since 2006. And 
people who feel that that is the case are not incorrect when you look at the kinds of policies that are put forward on both sides of the aisle and the kinds of money that is going into our politics. So how do you give people a sense of hope and dignity and how do we then deliver on it, right? I mean, I think that there's this sort of fundamental lack of symmetry between the task of a populist and our task. Populists just need to give people a sense of hope and dignity through far-fetched promises and lies and whatever it takes. And, you know, if they fail to deliver on those promises, it's fine because we don't particularly care about losing power. You know, they can either use, as they have done in many countries, all kinds of authoritarian tricks to make sure that they either retain the consent of the population or remain in power even if they don't. Um, and even if not, you know, they can be corrupt, make a lot of money while they're in power, and they don't particularly care what happens 20 years from now. If we care about defending liberal democracy, we need to not just give people a, a sense of hope and dignity in 2020 so that they vote out Donald Trump. We also need to make sure that they retain a sense of hope and dignity in 2024 and 2028 and 2032, because otherwise we're going to have one wave of Hotan populists after the next, slowly eroding the ramparts until they can take over the mixed metaphor castle of liberal democracy. So what does that mean in terms of policy? Where do we go looking for that? So I think that might not be the right question. I think that we need to go looking to a messenger as well as to a message. And those of us who think in terms of policy immediately want to jump to the message. But voters take a lot of cues from the messenger. They often don't bother with the policy. They're looking at the character of the person. And if you look at the last time we were in this kind of a situation, it was really with Andrew Jackson. He was the last populist who gained the White House. And the sort of more normal politicians of the existing parties did exactly what our normal politicians are doing. They threw up their hands and ran around in circles and didn't know how to deal with it. And so Andrew Jackson won a second election. And then the normal political parties continued to run in circles and throw up regular political challengers. And so Andrew Jackson got to pick his successor. He groomed uh, Van Buren and Martin Van Buren then took over. So he had basically 12 years in power. And I worry about something similar happening now. The Whigs finally figured out at that point, it was the, the Whigs. Jackson was a Democrat, of course finally figured out how to fight this populist wave by picking a messenger who was a very grassroots guy. The other campaign tried to make fun of him by saying, if you just gave him some money, uh, a bunch of cider and a log cabin, he wouldn't run for politics. He would just go back home. Well, it turned out people liked that. They wanted that kind of politician. And so he won overwhelmingly. And he was also a very tough guy. He was a big guy, very tall. But he played to some of the tropes that people who want to see a large male who is traditionally macho, those kinds of things in the White House, he played to those tropes. Then they got to policy. If you go the other way around, I don't think you're going to pull a lot of people to your side. Well, but it seems to me that we need both, right? I mean, that's what I mean about you know, addressing the anger. So like, obviously, you need a candidate who's appealing, you need a candidate who's able to persuade people who are wavering between Trump and other options, right? And we can have debates about what exactly those people are. But but that's obvious. I mean, to win in 2020, we need to win over some voters, right? And the only way of doing that is with an attractive messenger. But there's two things here, right? I mean, A, to be an appealing messenger, so you have to have a good, clear message. Not really. I would actually say I would actually say you don't need a clear message at all. You, you need a clear slogan. You don't need policies. Now, I believe in policy. I think you should have policies. 
But um, you see, I disagree with that because I actually think Trump won the 2016 election on policy, which people always sort of laugh at or, or roll their eyes. But I mean, his policy was to build the wall. Now, that's a policy that's counterproductive. It's a policy that doesn't particularly do anything, right? It's not going to deliver for people in the way that, that it claims, but it's a very clear policy. Bernie Sanders is not an appealing candidate in sort of traditional, right? He's not a good-looking, charming, 20, you know, 37-year-old, right? He's not, he's an old, cranky dude, but he had very clear policy, which again, actually, I, I have some doubts about whether free college is really nearly as radical as he claims. Um, in the end, I don't think it would do that much to really improve the lives of less affluent Americans. But it's a very clear promise. And one of the reasons why he could be so charismatic is that he has slogans, he has a moral vocabulary in the language that's mobilizing and it is crystallized in that policy. So uh, we might be using words in slightly different ways, but what I mean by you don't really need a good policy is that both on both sides, those were symbolic policies and you definitely need good symbols. You need to define your candidacy with symbols that tell people who you are and what your character is. Now, did Trump lay out a policy for how he was going to build his wall? Did Bernie Sanders explain how he was going to provide free college? No. And in both cases, those policies might be completely untenable once they start doing that sort of thing. They're not policy papers that are written up in ways that wonks would look and nod and, and, and agree. What they are is policies that symbolically put them with certain groups of people and make clear their moral belief set, the value belief set, not their cerebral belief set, not mm. what they think is right, but what they feel is right. That's where you need to go. And, you know, I'm a thinker, obviously. That's my, that's my job. I work in a think tank. So I'm not denigrating the need for good policy, but I don't think you win elections on it. You win elections on emotion. So I agree with that, absolutely. But but I think to me, in order to have the emotion, you have to have a promise. And that promise is a form of policy. It's not a policy white paper published and put forward by a Washington think tank, but it is a core promise that you're going to change the world in some kind of way by doing a concrete set of actions that actually make your life better. And that's a policy. But then I'm just exercised by this problem of, you know, if we make a whole bunch of promises and put up a charismatic candidate in 2020, and then for four years, nothing happens. And the incomes of ordinary Americans continue to stagnate or to fall. And some of the problems remain unresolved. I'm just worried about what then happens in the next election and the election after that. Well, there I agree with you. And so I think what, what it takes to win a campaign once and what it takes to win multiple campaigns or to govern are totally different things and highly disconnected. And I think you just don't want to put the cart before the horse. You want a good messenger and a good emotional story. And you don't want a lot of policies. You don't want a whole bunch of policies. You want one, two, or three very symbolic, clear policies that are emotionally resonant in a campaign. If you want to govern and actually make our country function, then you need real policies. And those cannot be opposed to what you suggested on the campaign trail, but they're often different and they're often harder and harder to sell, right? Our country needs to have a functioning educational system. We need to educate people in a way that they can get the jobs of the future. More and more jobs are going to be turned into jobs for robots. I mean, lawyers now are getting turned into jobs for robots because an awful lot of lawyers' jobs are kind of commodified. It's not just your truck drivers. It's moving on up the chain. It's going to be very hard to function in this country without education. But you know what? If you're a 55-year-old who's been working your whole life and is now looking at unemployment, the last thing you want to hear is that you're going to need to go back to school. Mm -hmm. So we also need a set of policies for those people who didn't like school in the first place, 
don't want to go back now, don't want to learn how to use computers or what have you, what are they going to do? We need some answers. Now, there's a lot of people working on the future of work and all sorts of things, but it's not just about, in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of talk but, now but, but about that's a good point, universal... right? You, you need an emotional answer as well as a policy answer, an answer that makes sense emotionally to a 55-year-old who's facing losing his job. Um, not just an answer that would work if we sort of pretend that everybody is going to be maximally responsive to that policy and so on. Exactly, exactly. Listen, so I'm going to hold you to something for the end of this conversation, which is, you know, keeping all of those longer term problems to one side for the moment. Who do you think is one person and what do you think is one core promise that could work in 2020? <laughs> Boy, that's a tough one. You know, I don't know all the people who are about to run, clearly. I think Hickenlooper, the governor of Colorado, is one person who could do it. He's an entrepreneur. He ran a bunch of beer pubs. He's a likable, charismatic guy. He's a guy and a white guy. And while I wish that this was not the case, I think that that is probably the kind of person who is going to win the next election, especially if you want to turn around some of those swing voters. So I think Hickenlooper might be the guy. In terms of the message, it has to be a message that's pretty similar to the last couple of presidents. I mean, hope and change and make America great again are not different messages. They're all tapping into the same feeling of Americans that we're about to get bypassed, that our country is on the downhill. Now, if you actually look at the statistics, that's not necessarily true. In fact, we're still the biggest manufacturing country in the world. People don't know that. So finding a way to offer hope and change and making America great that is not cynical is going to be the message. The policies to get there are going to be tough, but that's for post-campaign. Rachel, thank you very much. Thank you. Great to talk with you, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Go retro! and uh, share a classified ad for The Good Fight in the back pages of your favorite magazine. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner, for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.